Hello and welcome to episode 101 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad to be talking to you again. I have missed all of you. Hope you're doing so well. I've had some health challenges. Nothing infectious, thankfully. (laughs) Just those genetics and age combining to team up against me. But I'm getting better every day. My bees are a mess and I'll tell you a lot about them. That because the upside of going out and trying to fix a bunch of mistakes going on because I have not felt well enough to do all the usual bee work that I like to do, I'm being reminded of lots of things to talk to you about. So there's that. That's good. And the other thing that is helping me think of things to talk to you about, besides just random stuff I run across, is I'm mentoring a few beekeepers this year, kind of two in person and a couple just by communication. And it is such a joy to mentor a beginner who is active in educating themselves. I have mentored people who are kind of like me, sort of book geeks who just deeply study everything and are are maybe hesitant at first to get into the real hands-on beekeeping. I don't have anybody like that right now, but I have had in the past. And then there's another type of beginner who's also delightful, but because it's such a different type than me, it's really educational for me to understand how different people learn. And those are people who don't do so much of the book study, but will research and ask questions and go to people's yards and watch how it's done. Just much more hands-on learning. And anyway, I'm just having a great time. I've confessed on here before that I'm extremely picky, unapologetically picky (laughs) about who I will mentor. And part of that is just because of time limitations on, on my part. And, but an absolute beginner who hasn't taken a B course or hasn't spent some time with a mentor, I'm very hesitant because there is just this huge body of knowledge that you really need before you ever have bees in your yard, in my opinion. Some some people feel differently. Some people are, I don't know, maybe more comfortable with just figure it out as you go. But I, because my personality is so different, I have a hard time with that. But I'll tell you just for your technique, if you are looking for a mentor in your area, I'll tell you how these wonderful folks weaseled in, (laughs) I love all y'all, to getting me to mentor them. And that is by asking me questions, just casually, either on the phone or by text or when we see each other, just casually asking a question about something going on with their bees, but also letting it slip of all the research they've done on it, who they've talked to about it, what they've read which Bob Benny or Cayman Reynolds videos they've listened to. And just knowing that they have done some research, they have looked at some of the options for what they think is going on. That makes me so much more liable to take the time to, I should say, to make the time to talk to them and to follow up on that. Because to me, those two types of people are going to make great beekeepers, either people who are relentlessly hands-on and just dedicated in a way that even though on one level, it might take a little bit longer, that that is the the knowledge base level, it might take a little bit longer. The hands-on skills, it's actually going to go faster than a real book-based person. 
the good thing about having that stuff in your head, even if it doesn't make sense to you, but to do the reading, do the study, watch the videos, listen to the podcast, read the books, is that when you see it in real life in your yard, then it all falls into place in your head in a different way. It isn't just this disconnected thing like, oh, look at that. <laughs> no, I have those too, believe me. But but anyway, with, with a base of knowledge in your head, acquired however is your preferred learning style, it will just make beekeeping go better for you. It Beekeeping is one of those skills. And over the years, I have developed just this huge respect for the skill set, the tradition, the art, the science of beekeeping. Because when you see those cave paintings from the earliest, earliest humans made of harvesting honey from the cliff sides, and you realize how long this tradition is and how special it is in some cultures, you know, beekeepers, well, we're, I, I guess we're always the crazy people in the culture, but in some cultures, you know, that was just considered this huge and special skill. I mean, we have our own saints. Uh, more than one. <laughs> so it is a skill set that to me, I approach different than maybe other hobbies, but beekeeping is my thing and diving into it has been one of the greatest joys of my life outside of my friends and family and gardening. Uh, that that would just be my set of things that have been the most joyous in my life. And I want that for you. If, if that's what you want, if you want a casual hobby, I will insist that you try to do it well. <laughs> but past that, of course, everything's up to you. So anyway, this downtime, as you can probably tell, has given me time to think about things and learn some things by by sort of reabsorbing, you know, stuff you already know, and then you run into it in real life, and then you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, because being a nurse, whew, being a nurse is so different than having to deal with a health struggle of your own, let me just say, and the problem is you, you know too much, <laughs> so you can worry about a whole different set of things. So anyway, I'm horrifically behind in my bee yard in terms of where I would normally be, what I would normally be focusing on. What I am appreciative of is over this decade and change that I've built up a population of bees that are pretty darn robust. And so my usual thing when I have fewer hives is so focused on making more queens so that I'll have both enough to sell some nukes, trade some nukes, give some nukes, and also to have a nice selection of queens and hives so that I can pick the best ones to focus on to go through winter. But when all your hives are full and all your equipment is full and you have made a personal moratorium on any additional equipment which would allow you to have more hives because you can't handle more hives, then it becomes a little different. And interestingly, I'm running into some of the same problems that new beginners would run into in that I don't have a giant stack of supers full of drawn comb to just whip out and use for everything. I am out of drawn comb. I was out of foundation for a while, but I finally got a box of that in. Some of the same challenges that newbies have about having a very small amount of drawn comb in the hive, needing to feed the bees in order to keep them growing, to to be able to fill up that new hive, but also needing to not feed them so much that they fill up all the comb. Because if they fill up all the comb, the queen doesn't have a place to lay. Not having open cells to lay in is one of the major swarm triggers. And you can actually force a very small hive, a nucleus hive, you know, a nuke will gladly swarm on you, <laughs> even though they may not be of survival, survivable, viable size to go out in the world. But if they run out of space, 
you'll hear it called honey bound. It's really nectar bound. I mean, heck, it could be brood bound, but the, the bottom line is all the cells are filled with something. And if she doesn't have open comb to lay in, they're going to start thinking about swarming. We have to somehow walk that razor's edge between not filling up all the comb, but then also making sure they are plumped up enough with nutrition and nectar so that they can draw comb. So it's a very narrow path through those two, through those two things. So what I want to talk to you about, one is I want to talk to you about in all my unusual downtime that I've had to sit around and think about bees, I have been thinking about the differences of some of the splits that I like to use. I want to eat my hat a little more vocally on how much I love the runaway split after initially going, eh, it's okay, but I don't see that I need it. Well, let me just tell you, it has saved my butt so many times this year, but I think I'm going to email Sam Comfort and Ange Roll and say, I love this split. As I've said on earlier podcasts, I had actually run across this split called a flyback split. So it could be a flyback or a runaway. It's pretty much the same technique, but I didn't pay close attention to it because when I first came across the instructions for a flyback split, the person who was writing it, who's a a queen breeder out in Washington State, Lori, she was talking about how she liked to use that split because it created an entirely broodless portion of the hive. And she found that very very helpful time because she could do an oxalic acid treatment at that time. And since I I thought, well, I'm not doing oxalic acid treatments at this time in my life. I haven't had to yet. I might have to, but not yet. So I kind of just filed it away. And then the runaway split, when Ange Roll discussed it on the podcast of several back, it was kind of from the angle of a simple split that a beginner could do and have the highest chance of success in getting a new queen and, this is the really important part, and both halves, both portions of that split not swarming, which is a huge problem if you use an even split or a walkaway split, as I've (laughs) harped on, as you know, many times. At the time, I was much more fond of the more complicated cut-down split, which I would then further tweak to make a, a queen-maker cut-down, which is just my shorthand for a cut-down split that where you can actually produce honey and multiple queens for new nukes all at the same time. To me, that was the holy grail of splits. But it's complicated, and you have to find a queen in a giant hive, and you have to separate every frame based on what's on it, which is too complicated for a beginner, even an intermediate beginner. It can be pretty daunting to go through frame by frame and separate everything the way that you need to, all while the bees are getting more and more unhappy with you as you do it. So that's why I started teaching the nucleus split again in previous podcasts, which I saw the instructions written full out and the the technique really described on the apiarist. So the nucleus split, I thought, okay, you know, this is really simple, but again, you have to find the queen. And sometimes that is simply not possible. It might be because you are new and you have real trouble spotting the queen. If you have an unmarked queen in an enormous hive, it is a real long shot that you're going to find her. I find that challenging. I will go for it. But then if I haven't managed within, you know, if, if the if the five frames I'm guessing she's on, if I can't see her, then I'm probably not going to see her because by that time she's gone to hide somewhere. They are very good at hiding and the bees will also hide the queen, which is interesting to see. So the thing that has helped me so much about the runaway or flyback split 
this season because there was a time in the prime prime season to be doing all this that due to some life events and then some health events, I was not able to do the going back in and knocking down the extra queen cells. So for in the nucleus split and, and a, a cut down as well, depending on how you're doing it, it is vital to go back and knock down all but one or two, depending on your risk tolerance, queen cells. Because if, if you've left a sizable portion of the hive with multiple queen cells, depending on a bunch of different stuff, they may decide to swarm. If they have enough bees, so they've got, you know, two or three or four or five queens, virgin queens, they've got enough bees, they've got a bunch of stores, which you can easily have this situation if you pull a nucleus of the old queen and, the, and her little skeleton staff and you move her to a new spot, you've left all the resources of the hive except for that. And so a big hive like that can throw multiple after swarms. Now, sometimes it won't. And I'll tell you, I did one and then let's see, I think the day that I was supposed to knock down the queen cells, it was absolutely pouring, pouring rain. And I mean, I think we got really maybe four inches that day. And so I was just like, well, this is the luxury of having lots of hives. That hive is going to swarm and I can't do anything about it. They won't swarm today, but there's going to be virgins running around there. And as soon as the sun comes out, they're going to swarm. Well, of course I said that in my mind. So of course they didn't. And thinking about that, I think sometimes like, for example, my imaginary story about that scenario is that I think there's a good possibility that because on the day and the day after the queens were supposed to emerge based on my queen calendar, it was pouring rain. So nobody could leave the hive. And so it makes sense to me that that thing might've had 10 queen cells in there, but unfortunately there was just a bunch of carnage uh, because they couldn't leave the hive if all the virgins emerged and had time to find each other. Then apparently Apparently, one virgin succeeded because that hive now has a giant, beautiful, I might add, I looked at it yesterday, gorgeous brood nest. And there is just no thrill like a new queen that you had any part in making. And one of the people I'm mentoring, it was so sweet. I got a text. Uh, that person had done uh, several nucleus splits. And some of the uh, hives that were to requeen were not successful in getting a queen back. And so we were talking about doing a newspaper combine, which I am going to talk about later in this podcast, to get the pieces of the hive back together and to uh, reset everything and, and maybe do something else. They had their very first queen return of the season and sent this sweet text about being so excited. It is it is the funnest thing. I don't know. Maybe just some of us feel that way, but I think there's a lot of you that, that never gets old, seeing a new, sparkling, beautiful, laying like crazy young queen that's going to hopefully get that hive through the winter. So what I have come to love about the runaway flyback split is you can do a split all on the same day. Very simple. You do not have to find the queen. It involves some moving of some boxes, but that's it. It does not require finding the queen. It does not require going back in 10 days, and yet you can still get a good queen back, and, and you've improved your odds of a good queen cell by the the way you're doing it that I'm about to talk about, and you have way improved your odds of neither portion swarming, I should say, right away. 
So to refresh your memory, in a runaway split or a flyback split, you are essentially moving the entire hive. You can do that box by box, no problem. But you're essentially moving the entire hive to a new spot in the apiary. Now, I have tried them just by moving to the other side of the apiary. And I've tried them literally side by side, just turning it around and facing it the other direction beside the the new box that I'm going to put down. And that last part, I'll let you know how that goes because I just did that yesterday. I'm also out of hive stand space, so my hive stands look like an, an urban city block um, because they're so packed and stacked in there. But So you're moving the bulk of the hive, including the queen, to a new spot. So who's going to go back to the old spot? It's the flying bees, the forager, which are just the, the mature adult forager bees. So back at that original spot, all those forager bees, and from a, a big hive, that can be a lot of bees. So you're going to need a welcome center for them there. And so that is a new box of some sort and an appropriate amount of space for the size of the hive. So if I'm doing a a giant hive, I might put a couple of empty boxes at the spot filled with a combination of ideally drawn comb. If you have drawn comb and all those foragers have no brood to deal with, they're going to pick up a lot of honey, which is nice. And then I give them some stores, even though they are all capable of going out and getting stores. That is true only if it is not raining or the wind blowing or some other weather thing than in the mountains you can have at any given time. So I don't want them under stress. I give them a couple few frames of honey, nectar, pollen so that they're ready and definitely the pollen because I'm about to put a frame of open brood. Now I look for the absolute youngest wax, so the the most soft pliable wax that I can find in a frame from the mother hive that has the tiniest open brood. If I don't have my reading glasses on, what I do is look for the tiniest white larva and then look in that area and see if I feel like there's empty cells. And if there's empty cells without my reading glasses, that's probably eggs. So I take that frame, which I think of as your, it's your seed for your new queen. It's your sourdough starter. It's priming the pump. At So this is at the old spot. You've got your one frame that's going to be your, your queen start. And then you've got a nice big population of forager bees that are going to come back to that spot over hours and days. And you've got enough stores to keep them going in case of lack of flow, poor weather, whatever, because you don't want anything to interfere with them feeding that queen cell. They only have one frame, so they don't have to feed a lot. So even if there's open brood on that frame, they're not going to have any trouble feeding it. So anyway, at the old spot, you've got your queen starter frame, a very small nursing staff. The one thing you want to make sure is that the queen is not on any frames that you put at the original site. So the frame with eggs, I might look really carefully because I'm not going to shake it because I want the bees to stay on it, the nurse bees. But the other frames that I put on, like the stores or whatever else I might put in there, I want, I make sure there's no queen by simply shaking that frame into, back into the mother hive. So if she was on there and I didn't see her, I've just shook her back home in the mother hive, which is now in a different spot. So they've lost their foragers, but they have all the resources of that hive to feed all the babies that are going on. And then the queen will moderate her laying based on how much staff she has. So as long as they have all that stores, if there's any doubt, then feed feed that half but until they grow up enough forager bees to, to feed themselves. And you're done. 
you don't have to worry about the two portions swarming because you have separated the queen and the flying bees. So in any split, if you separate, there's a, there's a type of separation. So the components of the hive, you've got obviously the queen, you've got nurse bees, which both tend the queen and tend all the brood. Those are young bees. Those are also the ones that draw wax. They're very important bees. And then you've got the forager bees who have matured enough to go out in the world for their six weeks of glory and bring everything back to the hive. If you separate those components in any of the thousand types of splits that are out there, then you are breaking up the team that they need to swarm. So to swarm, they need a team of the queen, the flying bees, and some nurse bees. I've I've read that a portion of the nurse bees, I, I guess it's their first flight, actually go with the swarm. I guess they've analyzed swarms and there is a portion of nurse bees that go. I don't exactly know how that works. But if you've significantly separated those populations in some way, then what you've done is you've short-circuited the recipe for a swarm. How's that for a mixed metaphor? <laughs> and therefore you won't have a swarm right then. And I say right then, because now the the hive that has the the starter frame and all the flying bees, they are very unlikely to swarm, even if several virgins emerge, because there's no brood nest in there. Um, they they know to leave a viable brood nest behind in any hive that they're swarming from. Now, this is what separates swarming from absconding, which is the whole dang all of them leave. <laughs> and that's a, that's a whole different subject. That's usually in the case of like if you hive a swarm in some boxes and they decide they don't like those boxes and they go. Or if, unfortunately, if you hive a package in a box that's too small for them, they may abscond so there's not a single bee left. There's nothing. But in a swarm situation, they are very specifically, they are trying to reproduce. So they don't want to kill off the mother hive and they want to send a viable swarm into the world. And so therefore, if you have that hive, it can have a ton of bees. It can have a ton of forager bees. But if they don't have a good viable brood nest to leave behind, they won't go because they know that would be a death sentence for the hive left behind. And they don't have a brood nest because you've said it someplace else in the apiary. And all they have is that little tiny skeleton staff of nurse bees that raise the brood on that one frame. And they have brood from one frame. And that's not nearly enough uh, for them to think they have enough to swarm in most cases because bees. And so what that means is even if you have multiple queens on that one frame, they will likely duke it out and not do any type of virgin after swarms. So you can reliably, this is a great technique if you happen to know you need to split a hive, you don't have time to find the queen or can't find the queen, maybe you're going to be gone at 10 days from the day you make the split and there's no way you could either pull out extra cells to put them in a queen castle to raise more or there's just, you, you need them to do their own thing and you'd like for all your bees to be in the boxes at the end then the runaway split or flyback split is the way to go. I've had multiple ones work out so beautifully and so successfully that I just wanted to brag on them because I, at the time, did not have the option to do the the more complicated splits. 
And also, I haven't had the option to raise a bunch of homemade queens because I just don't have the the room for them. We have had a bumper bee season, at least in my county of Yancey County, that part of our improving survival rates in Yancey County, in our bee club of the people that I talk to, might be that our genetics are shifting for the better. And I have a tiny, tiny part of that in that I brought in some very good genetics from queen breeders all, you know, from the um, rest of the country. And then also our wonderful local queen rearer, Michelle Morrill, has brought in some excellent genetics and we've shared genetics. Now she is wrapping up for this season, both from a timing perspective, but also from a baby perspective, there's going to be a uh, a new little tiny beekeeper on the scene. So y'all keep her in your thoughts and prayers that this fall, we all get to celebrate the newest beekeeper family member for her thinking about you, Michelle. But anyway, I, I feel like the bringing in those genetics, most everybody in the club are getting nukes and packages from other beekeepers in, in our club. And I know that that does not equal cause and effect, but I can't help but notice that our survival numbers are getting better. So I hope that will continue. I hope that our local beekeepers will continue that of really focusing on bringing good bees into the neighborhood and in not watering those bee genetics down by bringing in Florida or out-of-state package bees. Now, don't feel bad if that's how you had to get started. That is okay. A lot of us have had to do that somewhere in the past. Once you get a viable hive going, please keep in mind that you have the option next year, if you can get them through the winter by hook or by crook, (laughs) if you can get them through the winter, then you have the option next year of requeening with excellent stock available locally. And wherever you're listening, I do hope that you have that opportunity in your area. And maybe you are going to be the one to start really paying attention to the genetic lines of bees and selecting and making those available to your community. I noticed that Brian Fisher online, I noticed that in addition to his own excellent, wonderful queens, he is bringing in queen material from Corey Stevens. Yes, we other queen aficionados, we we look at all that. So so anyway, um, I believe that better genetics might be putting a finger on the scale to help us have better survival in our area. We are also incredibly blessed to have a fabulous team of officers in our bee club that are, they're really focused on all the things that go into the good, into good beekeeping from knowledge to hands-on. And they're just working tirelessly for that. That has been beautiful to see and to support in any way. So back to the splits, I might do as a uh, patron bonus, I might do a deep dive into just talking about how these splits are different because one person I was talking to was saying, now how is a nucleus split and a flyback split? Explain how those are different. And I, and I started out and I I knew it was going to be a long conversation when I'm like, well, they're, they're kind of mirror images of each other, but not completely. And so it turned into a long conversation. So I might do a deep dive as a bonus for the patrons at patreon.com slash five apple as a thank you for their making this show possible. This show and its utter lack of commercials is completely due to the support of the patrons. I thank you all so very much and would welcome any of you that feel called to that. I had posted a little thing on the patron channel. If you haven't checked it, I posted something about laying workers because I've heard quite a few people having laying workers and that's a thing that 
can very much happen when you're making splits or if your bees are splitting themselves by swarming. And that is if for whatever reason there's a failed queen return and for whatever reason that you don't get back in there in time to see that that was a failed queen return and help them out, then the at some point they have, and it's actually, it doesn't take long at all. I mean, it takes about a week for a hive to not have any potential of raising a new queen. Because if they don't have a larva that is extremely young to start with, they cannot make a new queen. So this is actually a kind of beautiful coping mechanism that the, the bees do. So they're hopeless. They're, they are, that's a kind of a terminal project. They're not going to be able to make a viable hive. So instead of giving up, what do they do? They, well, and I should say, um, the pheromone basis for this is once the, once there's no open brood pheromone, so there's no queen pheromone in that hive, there's no open brood pheromone. I believe I've read that it is the open brood pheromone that is what puts the brakes on all those other bees, all those other female bees from developing their ovaries enough to lay. Now they never went on a mating flight, so they're going to be laying unfertilized eggs just like when the queen chooses to do unfertilized eggs, then that creates drones. So laying workers, all they can do is make drones. And they're not good at this. They have no skills. <laughs> they did not get the instruction manual. So the diagnosis for laying workers is when you see a bunch of eggs in one cell, like a bunch, and new queens can sometime, when they've still got the training wheels on, sometimes they'll do a little bit of that. And I do mean a little bit of that when they first get going. But mostly laying workers, you will see, you know, five, 10, who knows how many eggs all in one cell. And you'll also see cells laid on top of pollen, which is just all wrong. And I'm not saying that a new queen might do that too. But once you see this significantly on a frame, you probably have laying workers and that hive is no longer viable. Now, what the hive is doing is they are trying their best to make as many drones as possible because in their instincts, let them know that that is the only chance they have of passing their genetic lineage on in the world by making boys to go out there and make more bees somewhat like them. So that's actually a beautiful solution that the bees have come to when they do not have a chance of making a new viable queen and brood nest is they say, oh, well, okay, let's make as many boys as we can. And in that way, it helps the species go on. I love that. But as a beekeeper, it's a terrible thing to open your hive and see laying workers because once they go there, boy, they are committed to it and it is really difficult to get them to accept a new queen. In fact, it's so difficult that I, I tend to just work on dampening down their ovaries with by putting in open brood, frames of open brood, shaken clear of bees from other hives, and then I just start a succession of adding frames to that hive. And that's because, as you know, the frame is capped in five days. So there's only open brood pheromone going out into the world for a few days. And so I just, I feed them that, feed that hive like a series of open brood frames. They will take care of it. They will cap it. And sometimes they will attempt to make a queen cell on it. I should say most times. Once they get that fresh, they're like, hey, this is a queen seed. <laughs> they are ready and they try to make a queen cell. This is the part that I do different than a lot of people that I've heard. Once they make a queen cell, it is true. They are starting the process. They are starting the process of turning away from being laying workers. 
But my feeling is if there's laying workers, then that means they've been without a queen for over a month, typically. And what that says to me is pretty much every bee in that hive has graduated, has grown old for a bee and become an old forager, an old cranky forager. (laughs) Not only are they not as good at feeding brood as younger bees, I mean, they can revert. To me, that hive is not going to raise the best queen being a bunch of geriatrics trying to do this thing that is a young bee job. So I use the brood frames as kind of the test. Well, I should say a couple of things. It's not really the test yet. At first, the open brood frames are to try to dampen down their overactive, <laughs> their newly freed ovaries that are, that are not queen ovaries. So I want to dampen down that activity. The brood frames also let me know that they are truly hopelessly queenless. Anyway, an, an egg frame is a great test. If you find a hive, you don't see eggs, you can't see a laying queen, you don't see eggs, you don't see much brood, and you're like, what's going on here? A frame of eggs and brood from another hive is a great test to see if they're queenless. If they're queenless, they will start a new queen cell on that. And there's your diagnosis. And you can then decide, depending on the age of that colony, the size of it, whether they are up to making their own queen or not. If they don't make a queen cell on that frame, then you have pretty darn good confirmation that they have a queen in process somewhere. That may be, she may be a virgin queen that's running around the hive. She may be a queen cell that you didn't see, but in if they don't make a queen cell on it, that lets you know there is a queen in the works somewhere and that tells you don't buy a replacement queen. If you buy a caged queen and put it in there, they will kill it, period, because they want their queen and they're willing to wait for their queen. So the test frame of a frame of brood has been very handy. So anyway, in the laying, the fixing the laying worker hive, once I've hopefully suppressed their ovaries somewhat over a week or two with just constantly feeding that them open brood, then I will do a newspaper combine of a strong nuke on top of that laying worker hive. To me, this is a jump start. It uh, jump starts the whole hive and pretty almost instantly you have a viable functioning hive as soon as they chew through that newspaper. Let me be clear, you have knocked down those queen cells. Like if you did the test frame and they made queen cells, you've knocked down those queen cells on those frames because you don't want any conflict between the the new queen. There's much less likelihood of being conflict once they see once they get a whole nucleus. Typically, if there's a, a, a queen cell started somewhere in the hive, often they'll go knock it down, but not always. Sometimes they will protect it, raising up, and then that virgin queen will go kill your mated queen. But still, a, a, a newspaper combine of a nuke. Re, uh, let me just say this. Requeening with a queen right strong nuke is the most, in my experience, foolproof way to requeen a hive that I've ever seen. So there you go. That's my experience anyway. And finally, and I know this has run on way too long and I apologize, but finally I want to talk about some ins and outs of the newspaper combine. Anytime you need to combine two hives, like a queenless portion and a queen right portion, a piece of newspaper between those two portions, all it does is it slows down their getting to know each other. It makes the hive have to chew up newspaper to make little holes in the newspaper, to chew it up, tote it out, because you know they will, 
And in that time, the queenless portion is getting the scent of that new queen, getting that pheromone going on. They're, they're trading, um, I'm blanking on the word right now, but they're trading pheromone by, uh, touching tongues. And they're also, uh, yes, you know, I don't even know. That's a good question. I'm gonna have to look that up. How do they absorb pheromones? I I know it's their antenna and then their little tongues, but I want to look up if that's the only ways they take in pheromone. Anyway, the the slowing down of that merging process typically allows them to merge with as least amount of death and destruction as possible. As you know, if you just combine two hives, even if one only one of them has a queen. There can be a lot of fighting and a lot of dead bees that that come out of that. And sometimes in the mayhem, the queen can get killed. So you you don't want to do that if you can possibly avoid it. And a simple piece of newspaper. I keep newspaper folded up in my toolbox out in the main yard and folded up in my toolbox that goes in the car to out yards just in case I need to combine hives. So having the newspaper, that's the easy part. Putting the newspaper between the portion of hives, that's the easy part. But what someone I was mentoring brought to my attention is they had questions about, well, you know, which part do you put on top? And I realized, and this is the sometimes the problem of having years and years of bee experiences, you forget not knowing these things. And so you forget to explain the details. So I want to just tell you this about newspaper combining right now. There's... In most cases, if you do a newspaper combine, however you do it, it's probably going to work out. But to better my odds, I like to do a few things. For one thing, whichever is the larger portion, I should say whichever has the most flying bees of the two hives that you need to combine, whoever has the most flying bees, I like to leave them in place and so they end up on the bottom of the newspaper combined. So if I have a big hive that for whatever reason has gone queenless, hopefully they haven't gone laying worker yet. If I'm remotely up to date on my on my checks, they won't have, but believe me, I've had laying workers, so it can happen. So the bigger portion of flying bees stays where they are because if you move that hive, all of those flying bees are going to go back to that old spot. If there's no hive there, not only are they confused and angry, but they also will then try to go into other hives, which may or may not work. So there's a bunch of bee death in, involved in that. So I try to keep those forager bees, the, the bulk of the forager bees in place. And then on top, and they, their entrance stays just like it is. And then on top of that, I combine the smaller portion of the split. And often that is the queen right portion because often I'm putting a nuke. This is one reason I love them to have them just sitting around waiting to have a deep bench of, of nukes. That way, if somebody goes queenless and I've done my test frame, they're definitely queenless, just pop a nuke on top with the newspaper. It's done. You just have, that's just the most incredible spare part to, to have around because it is literally the nucleus of a hive. So let's say I'm leaving the bigger portion in place. I put the newspaper on. I take, obviously, the outer cover and the inner cover out, off, (laughs) off. I put the newspaper directly on top of the frame bars. Often there's also propolis on the edges of the box, which is very handy for kind of gluing the newspaper sheet down while I'm walking over to the other part of the yard to get a nuke that I've placed into a, a hive box. I set that 
nuke on top of the newspaper. Now, there's a couple things here to take care of that nuke, which is usually the queen right portion for me. And that is I want them to have ventilation. I do not want them to get cooked to death by being in the top of a hive in the hot summer and not having ventilation. I also want those bees in the time that it takes, which depending on the size of the hives might be overnight, but it might be a couple of days depending on who who and how they are, I want them to have their own entrance so that their foragers, they might not be many of them, can go. So usually that's a top entrance. So I've I've set this new box that has the, the queen right nuke in it and, of course, the space filled with frames over the newspaper. And then I usually put the inner cover that came off the hive on top of them. A little side note of that is that's the tiniest bit of they're getting used to each other's smell because that's going to smell like the hive that you took it off of. So I use that original inner cover, put it on there. All my inner covers have entrances. Now, depending on how your inner cover is made, that entrance may require you to slide the outer cover completely forward so that little entrance is open. So just be aware of that. You may have a little entrance notch on your inner cover, but some of them are made where the bees have to come up through the hole in the middle and then go out the front that way. Others are made where as soon as you set it on top of that box, they're going to instantly have an entrance. So just be aware that you're very consciously opening that entrance, not only so they can have one, but very importantly, so that they won't get overheated when they're cut off, you know, when all they have is newspaper under them and all the heat from the day or in the hive below. And on that, just because I'm tweaky that way, I will off, I'll sometimes put a little piece of uh, the foam insulation. I set on the outside of the outer cover, just out there, just essentially to provide them some shade. Queening that way with a newspaper combined with some attention to who's going where. Now, did I leave forager, forager bees behind where that nucleus was? Yes. Their nucleus, their forager population is now homeless. Hopefully, they will find other hives to go in and, and be adopted. That's what I hope. But either way, they will, I'll have minimized the number of lost forager bees. If they're side by side, if they were already side by side, then the, the forager bees will probably find their way. But if they're more than a hive or two away, or if there's a whole, you know, jumble of hives in that area, then they're unfortunately going to have to try to find homes elsewhere. If there's a flow going on, often they will, because a lot of hives, if a forager bee comes back loaded with pollen or nectar, they're going to be like, come on in. We don't know who you are, but come on in. Now, this is also how mites spread. But anyway, I just want to minimize the number of lost forager bees, both for the happiness of the bee yard and for the happiness of the beekeeper, because it's hard to work out there when you get a big cloud of homeless forager bees that are upset and angry, as any of us would be. All right. Well, I've gone on all over the place. I still have a whole list of things I wanted to tell you that I didn't even get to. I also still want to read you the wonderful Bob Binney article just because I said I would, and that will be coming next. Patrons, I am trying to make myself a mental book note, feel, I can't even say it, a mental bookmark <laughs> to um, tell you more in depth about the some of the, the deep dive into the types of splits and how to both select which split you want to do and then some of the technicalities to make it good to achieve whatever outcome you want, whether that is simply another queen, whether that is a bunch of honey and another queen, whether that is a bunch of honey and a bunch of new queens. And I'll, I'll talk to y'all about that. Okay. Again, if you're able and you feel called to join us in keeping this podcast 
sponsor an advertisement free by supporting it. I would welcome that at patreon.com slash five apple. And there you will get the occasional bonus podcast and also the occasional bonus post of just whatever I happen to be thinking of. Then I'll make a, a little tiny blog post on there to share it with the patrons. Videos or websites that I come across that are legit and have good B information for you. So with that, I will draw this to a close. Thank you to everyone listening that I also know personally who have been so encouraging with me uh, getting back to myself. There's nothing like B friends. B friends are, are some of the best friends I've made in the world in this section of my life, and I am so appreciative for that. All right, y'all have a good week. Feel free to email me with any questions that come to your mind, blueridge714 at gmail.com. While I can't respond to any time-sensitive things, when I finally get around to it, I really will respond. All right, thank you. Bye-bye.